Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 990. This week on the show, lead prospect writer Eric Longenhagen is joined by our friend and yours, Mike Farron, of MLB Network Radio on Sirius XM. Eric and Mike recorded this extended conversation on Tuesday, and they begin by talking about the 2023 draft class. It may seem early, but there's a ton of amateur talent to be excited about. The duo remark on how large the class is, like physically, and specifically players like Arjun Nambala, Alfonso Rosario, Kevin McGonigal, and Max Clark, who has already been pretty impressive to watch. Had what was one of the best individual area code game performances I've ever seen at a five for five day with a triple. The ball in play on the triple was never more than five feet off the ground. He just <laughs> hit it so freaking hard that the shortstop like flinched and had the shortstop who luckily for that young man, whose name I forget, <laughs> had he been a foot to the right, it would have just gone through his chest like Meryl Streep, death becomes her <laughs> style. Clean through. Wow, what a pull from a terrible movie. After that, Eric and Mike discussed the state of the major leagues and how the expanded playoffs have affected the landscape. Teams like the Padres, Brewers, and White Sox are all struggling, while the Cardinals could somehow be seen as underrated, which just feels weird to say. We also hear about the Orioles being ready a bit ahead of schedule and how the Seattle Mariners look good to go. I'll be surprised if Seattle isn't the top wildcard team at the end of the day, and it doesn't have as much to do with the schedule as it just does. I think their rotation is in really good shape. I like the mix-and-match bullpen that they have. I think they have enough offense overall that they can be a dangerous team. You know, they obviously they have Julio Rodriguez, who's transcendent. So, like, there's a lot of stuff to really like with Seattle right now, and I think they kind of fit in that the top of that next group. But I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot of movement here. But before we get to this conversation, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. You can not only scoop some Fangraphs merch, but you can also get an ad-free membership, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. Ad-free browsing at blazing fast speeds is not only the best way to experience the website, but it is of course the best way to support the website, helping us to keep doing everything we do. We sincerely appreciate it and couldn't do it all without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. From the Southwest Desert Vista Compound, this is lead prospect writer Eric Longenhagen coming to you on another Fangraphs audio episode. I have no business bringing this man in as host of anything at all. This is from Sirius XM's MLB Network Radio. It's a friend of you and me. It's Mike Farron. How's it going, Mike? I am good, Eric. How are you? It's a pleasure <laughs> to be with you. I am honored to be uh, with you on Fangraphs audio. You probably set the record for chocolatiest voice to ever grace the <laughs> Fangraphs audio uh, stream. <laughs> I doubt that. You guys have had Boog on. I guess that's true. I'm the cut rate John Shambi, so that's... I'm not sure about that. Uh, I don't know Boog at all, so as far as I know, it doesn't exist. <laughs> so you and I, we live 20 minutes from one another and still tend to see each other only at work. Um <laughs> I know, right? Like, it, it, the thing is, like, it, I mean, we're friends in real life and have been for a long time, like going back to when we lived on the East Coast, and yet we never see each other unless we're at the ballpark. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's pretty natural. Probably. <laughs> I think that's been my experience, whether the common denominator in that experience is always me. <laughs> but uh, most of the people who I call my friends, yeah, I, I talk to while not making eye contact with them because we're looking at a common object, which is often like a spheroid Right. Through space. 
But yeah, so you and I were around one another ostensibly the last few days doing the end of 2023 high school showcase season. For the most part, there are a few fall events in Jupiter and the fall classic here in Arizona, which can can move the needle for the top of next year's draft class, at least among the high school ranks. But we did the, the bell cow event and you've done the two events really during the summer in PG National, which happened before the 2022 draft was even over. And then the Perfect Game All-American Classic at Chase Field here over the weekend. And so I wanted to get some of your thoughts on next year's draft class from your point of view, especially the high school kids. And so what I'd like from you is one kid who blew you away from a workout standpoint, where they are running their 60 or taking BP or infield and just blow you away in that space. Who is that player? Who is the player who you're looking up and always seems to be doing something in a game from a performance standpoint? And then who is a player who blew you away just sort of talking to them, getting to know them as a person over the course of the last few months? Yeah. So the workout, it's kind of a tie for me. So I think the the guy who I think is going to be way up there on, on a lot of the draft lists is Arjun Namala, who's a shortstop from Valrico, Florida, goes to Strawberry Crest High School. And I've been floating this one around. So you may have, have heard it at this one. But to me, he looks like a, like physically is a very young Alfonso Soriano, that kind of like thin, twitchy power athlete, even though he doesn't have, I mean, this, like this class, class is enormous, right? Like physically, these guys are gigantic. Yes. It's a major difference from the last time I went through a full draft cycle, which probably would have been like 20, going into the 2018 draft. You know, when I did like, per, when I went to Perfect Game National and called the All-American Game and did a bunch of stuff on the high school side. And just from a physical standpoint, these guys are all huge. Like there's legitimate six four guys who you go, you know, it's not a outside the realm of possibility that this six foot four inch, 225 pound high school kid could stay at shortstop. So like we're talking about a different class of athlete in terms of the size of these guys. And Namala doesn't necessarily fit that. He's like 6'1 and probably like 170 pounds, but it is twitch. It is legit juice in the bat. It looks like he's got a chance to be able to be a shortstop. Like I, I like him an awful lot. The other guy from the workout standpoint is Alfonso Rosario, who was kind of a little bit of an unknown. He moved to the States about 18 months ago. He moved to Newark, New Jersey. He's going to go to, I think, the P27 Academy in South Carolina. He's Eggy Rosario's half-brother. He's cousins with Fran Reyes and Catel Marte. And like at PG National, he was like, okay, who's this kid from New Jersey that's committed to Chipola Junior College? And then, you know, he's hitting 445 foot tanks and batting practice and throwing 100 miles an hour from the outfield and running a 67660 so just about slightly above average time and like that's a guy who is a workout monster that I'm really curious to see more of in game action I think in terms of game action, the guy that that I kind of gravitate towards is Kevin McGonagall, the the left-handed hitting um, second baseman from from Philadelphia. He just like is always in the right spot defensively. He just has a really good, easy swing. It's natural. I think he's you know one of the top prep bats in the class, and maybe has the best like pure bat to ball skills, or is on the short list for that. And then in terms of impressive that I've talked to. 
Now, I I spent a five good minutes the other day with Max Clark and was you know and I realize he's like the most famous player in this class right but really humble it was cool I was talking to him about his high school football season and he was giving me like a full breakdown of their opening week win over the defending four A state champs in Indiana and you know he's a little bit got a, a little bit of a cool background in that you know like his parents you know, made all of his him and his siblings take music lessons when he was a kid like a lot of us do and he still plays the piano and I I had a really I was really impressed by how polished he was, but also how natural he was in conversation. And so I would say that those are kind of the guys that stand out. And it's weird. I don't know if it's weird to say this, that Clark kind of stood out for me more when I saw him in conversation than he has in any of the workouts or the game action I've seen to this point. All right. Let's, if we had to do some 2022 draft, 2023 draft, either ors, just sort of trying to apples to mm-hmm. Apple's prospects, try to tr- sort of triangulate where they might belong on a board. Max Clark, obviously, you mentioned it. He he is like the most famous high scorer from this class. He has been either at or among the best players in, in the class for well over a year at this point. High school outfielder from Indiana. Had what was one of the best individual area code game performances I've ever seen at a five for five day with a triple. The ball in play on the triple was never more than five feet off the ground. He just (laughs) hit it so freaking hard that the shortstop like flinched and had the shortstop who luckily for that young man, whose name I forget, (laughs) had he been a foot to the right, it would have just gone through his chest like Meryl Streep, death becomes her (laughs) style. Cleaned through. Wow, what a pull from a terrible movie. It's one of those movies that like I you want to be good. Yeah, and it but never really is. isn't very good. Oh god. Yeah, I saw it in the theater. Really? Did you? Oh, oh. yeah. Back yeah. when I'm tickets old. were like six bucks. I don't think they were even six bucks at that point. I'm old, dude. I'm an old. You forget that. I guess it's because I'm starting to get into that into that area. Uh, this is yours. I'll digress for a sec. I went home, right? I visited uh-huh. Pennsylvania for the first time in a while, and I was in Bethlehem the day that the Lehigh students had all arrived, like classes began the next day or two. And I'm literally like almost twice as old as the freshman class. And I really felt that walking around. I was just walking around children. It was weird. Okay, anyway, Max Clark or Elijah Green? I think Clark has the chance to be a little bit more complete player than Green. You know, like, uh, this is tough now because I thought Green got to be a little bit underrated, right, as we got into the draft cycle. Like, he had cleaned up some of the swing and miss issues and... You know, he's just like such a crazy tool shed with good makeup and like, you know, great family lineage and all this. And like, like Green went from being, you know, that that guy, he almost was like the post hype guy, even though he was still a draft prospect. And the ceiling is still probably higher. Now he's got like a 50% strikeout rate in, you know, his first go around on the Gulf Coast League and a handful of bats. So like, I don't know that that necessarily changes it, but I think Clark's floor is probably a little bit higher, even though his ceiling isn't going to be as like, you know, like a 35 homer guy. I don't I don't view that. I know he hits the ball really hard, but it's more like a complete well-rounded center field game than the power one where Green just because he's massive, you know, I'm sure there's some feeling that he has to move to a corner at some point. But like that's kind of where where I am with Clark is I I think it's you know, I love upside, so I might take green, but I think that's where it starts to be very close and that and that's maybe the difference in these classes is that the 
the top end of it from the high school player isn't quite as good or as famous as the top end end of last year's class where, you know, everybody had a pro lineage. Yeah. Rather than Andrew Jones and Matt Holiday, we've got like Reggie Willits. His son is <laughs> eligible this year. Right. But yeah, so and I am arguably that guilty party on Elijah Green when all was said and done, I had him ranked eleventh. He went fifth. Obviously, the swing and miss concerns are there, and you talked about him remedying those issues. I think that if I put a guy at low A in 2021, and then he repeated low A in 2022, that even if he's not done anything developmentally to become better or less of a swing and miss problem, he should have theoretically like better numbers right. from having repeated the level. And that is essentially what Elijah Green did in varsity play at IMG, which is tracked more heavily statistically than 99% of other varsity high school environments. So yeah, like he did cut his strikeout rate, but in essence was repeating the level high school. So there's that. Also like Elijah Green, from a long speed standpoint, has a shot to play center field. From a feel and like route efficiency standpoint, That and this is just me with my eyeballs saying this, mm-hmm. not as bullish there as I am with Max Clark, but totally agree that the bat to ball portion of Clark's game is there. And so like it's apples to apples from a standpoint that they are high school outfielders and that's about it. Right. Otherwise like player type, phenotype, pretty, pretty different. Although I do think, you know, I do feel sitting here like Clark, if I'm over undering where he goes in next year's draft, it's probably like pick five. It's somewhere in there. The cleaner comp for him coming out is probably Corbin Carroll, where it's like, Corbin Carroll was more undersized and you had to come around to believing that he was going to make himself strong enough to deal with like pro caliber pitching and he has and Clark is already closer to that. He's like 6'1 or 6'2 and already hitting the crap out of it. So there's that. Okay, let's take McGonagall, Kevin McGonagall or Cole Young who went in the back of third of the first round to Seattle, pick 21 overall, high school shortstop from the Pittsburgh area in Pennsylvania. More glove first, a lot of contact. How do you feel about he weighs against McGonagall? Yeah, I, I like I like McGonagall an awful lot. I mean, I think he's, to me, he's kind of like a mid-first round guy, and it's mostly because of position, right? I've got a pretty good feel for his, his at-bats. The thing is, like, in the showcase setting, you know, you can get fooled, right? Because they're workouts. But in tournament and game action, this guy is always produced. I think he's just because he's, you know, I tend to gravitate towards the bat first in that, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to draft in the middle of the first round, you know, even if you're looking at Young, who might be a glove for shortstop as being kind of a late first rounder, like I would rather have the guy that can hit and that, you know, even if he's on the dirt now, we might be able to find a position for him with the idea that, well, if second didn't work, you know, he would move to third or you might be able to move him to a corner in the outfield. I And I don't think that's the case with McGonagall. I think he'll be a really good, solid second. Second baseman. I mean, he's kind of patterned his game after Chase Utley, and which makes sense because he's a Philly kid and he's a left-handed hitting second baseman, right? And Chase Utley is, I'm sure you will attest to, is the greatest of all time. And so, like, that's what happens <laughs> with the Philly kids. But he's a pretty good defender at second, and he's got a really good baseball IQ. So, to me, he would rank 
like he would have ranked higher than Young in this year's draft class. I think that's kind of like to me, Young is is close to the floor of the first round bats, right? From this last year, whereas McGonagall is more like, you know, towards the top of this one. And I think that's where you, you start to see this difference in the class where it's not quite as high end, but the depth of quality could be there in a different manner. Do you have any other guys from the high school group who you feel are first round locks who just they've blown you away sufficiently to feel confident that they are going to go in the first round. We had, let's see, one, two, I'm counting the first round high schoolers from last year. Jackson Holiday, Drew Jones, Tamar Johnson, Elijah Green, all went in the top five. Jet Williams, Dylan Lesko, Cam Collier was technically a Juco guy. I mean, even towards the back of the first round, we had Owen Murphy and some of the projectable pitching going. It was like eight guys, nine guys. Yeah, I think that there's, I mean, guys who I feel like are likely first rounders in this, or at least the, the way it feels coming out of this. I mean, I would add, you know, McGonagall, Clark, Namala. I think those are three guys yep. that, that would stand out to me. And Walker Jenkins, who I, that, this was my first chance to see him because he had a handmade issue that had cost him most of this summer. And Jenkins is really impressive and has a really good idea of how to hit and didn't look out of place as a high schooler playing in center field, although you can see physically he's headed either to you know right or left or, or, or probably to first base, but I don't think it's going to matter. The bigger question with Jenkins is he's had two hip surgeries, one in, when he was 13, one when he was 16. So he's had both hips done, and I think teams are going to keep a close eye on that. But I think Jenkins absolutely fits that mix. I think because of Braden Holcomb's athleticism at short, I think he would be a guy that would maybe be in that mix. Aiden Miller, who's an, another you know third baseman and pitcher who's from Florida, I think would be kind of a back of the first rounder. Rafi Velasquez is another one who's the you know slugging left-handed hitter catcher from California yeah, who's committed to to ASU. It's crazy, crazy power. And like in the scrimmage on Friday, like he nearly went out the other way at Chase Field. Like that's no. It's no joke with Wood for, you know, like a, a kid that's not even 17 or close to 17. So I would put those guys in that. And then I think that, you know, the high school pitching class is actually kind of interesting too. I mean, Noble Meyer is a guy who I think is really polished and really good. He's from West Lynn, Oregon, which I think I think he went to the same high school that McAble did. They're from the same area. And Meyer is really polished. And his All-American performance wasn't quite as good or as dominant as his uh, PG National was, but I think he's a guy that's in the mix. And then I would add in, you know, Charlie Soto, who's one of the youngest players in the class, who's, you know, up to 98, and Travis Sikora, who touched 100. And, you know, like you get a 100-mile-an-hour fastball-throwing Texan, and I know everybody starts panicking about Tyler Kolek, but he's a little different physically. He's kind of mimicked Nolan Ryan's delivery a little bit. So those would be the guys at the top of that list. And then I think I would put in Thomas White, too, who didn't actually play in the All-American game, but was at National, and he's going to be a guy that I think will... will, He's got a couple of other summer appearances that are coming. Those are guys that I would feel pretty good about being in the first-round range. So that's what, eight or nine there, right? And I I could see it going deeper. I mean, there's, there's... The thing is, is that, like... I don't know how you felt about this at Area Codes, too. Like, there's a really... It's a little bit like this year's group of college bats, where it, this year's group of college, high school hitters are like, there's a lot of guys that I kind of like, and I don't know where to put them yet. I'm really curious to see what they look like next spring, but that like you could have this kind of rare opportunity to populate rounds 
two and three with a number of prep bats in a way that that we don't we haven't seen recently because they're all fairly close and and there are things to like about each of these guys that make this high school class intriguing even if it lacks the star power yeah the so some of the guys who I also have first round grades on coming out of most of the summer at this point Walker Jenkins Walker Jenkins was in my top five when I updated my 23 rankings last fall. I did not at that time know about the hip surgery stuff, but just in terms of like how much power there is now, how short he is back to the ball, the physical projection and the size and what I've seen in person. Like, I don't know if I'm comfortable taking him in the top five, but I'm, I definitely think he's a first rounder. Mm-hmm. I like Blake Mitchell a lot, the high school catcher from Texas. There's just, an, again, like, Size, physicality, left-handed hitting, performing from a bat-to-ball standpoint in my looks, timing fastballs, you know, like can pull a fastball with power, can mm-hmm. can be late and drive the ball the other way with power. Eric Batanti, who I've seen play all over the place. Third base, corner outfield, shortstop. He's 6'4", 225. Yeah. Another one where there's bat-to-ball performance in games and – Huge power, projection and room for more. There's consistent lift in the swing. This is the guy whose swing has like the most obvious uppercut without it sacrificing contact, at least in my looks. Uh, this hasn't like been double checked for statistical accuracy. I got to go through synergy and do some of that stuff yet. Rock Kolowski, the shortstop from here in Arizona, is the best defensive player in the class. Yeah, super polished. Like, just like, he, I mean, his dad's a longtime area scout. Like, he's just got yeah. baseball skills, like, up and down. And then the other, it's funny that the scouts' kids are better in this year's class than any of the players' kids. <laughs> Billy Gasparino's son, Billy yeah. Gasparino is the Dodgers' scouting director. How tall is Billy? He's 5'11? Yeah. So Billy played <laughs> shortstop at Oklahoma State and was a good player. Will is listed at 6'6, six, six, and I think he's more like 6'9. He's another one. There's way more room on his frame than most of the other giant kids in the class at 6'6, maybe 200 pounds. He's probably he says got room he's 205. For yeah. Okay. I guess there's room for another 30 to 40 pounds. He looks okay in center field at 6'6, has good feel to hit, and just generally like the baseball procedural stuff is, is in place for him. Uh, and for a guy as long levered as he is at his age, the bat to ball stuff is just very encouraging. So he's another one where I think he could sneak into the first round. Dylan Head from uh, mm-hmm. the Chicago area, Homewood Flossmore, is the one where the hit tool is kind of scary, but in terms of how much raw power there is and the speed component, he is among the higher ceiling high schooler like in the class. Yeah, Sakura. Sakura is tough, man, because you know how I feel about the high school pitching right? in general. I don't think his stuff is as big as Brock Porter's. And I know Brock Porter didn't go in the first round, but he got first round money. You know, healthy Dylan Lesko, I'll take him over Sakura. And I think I would just, I would take injured Dylan Lesko over Sakura too, but I have a late first round grade on Sakura at this stage. Like, there's just too much stuff. And it's not like his delivery is so violent. Like, his delivery is better than, than Porter's. Porter's stuff was just more switched yeah. on. And Porter had a little bit more room on his on his frame, whereas Sakura is maxed out, but it's like six foot 240, really well composed. It's not like Jared Kelly, where you're like, uh, this is kind of scary. It's more like Riley Pint. Yeah. Which also, you know, it's Riley Pint with like better feel. 
but not as nasty stuff. So it's always hard. The the high school pitching, Andrew Painter at the same stage, probably better too, in terms of like how much room there was on on his frame. But that was true. That's true of Painter now, and it wasn't true of Summer Showcase Painter, yeah. who was built more like Sakura. So let me let me just hit on a couple of those. I think I mean I think there's room for Sakura when you get into a, a pro program to see him fill out. The thing is that he doesn't need to add velocity, really. It's more refinement of secondary pitches with him. I want to go back to two of the bats that you mentioned there because Batati, in addition, is like the second youngest player in this class behind Namala. And it, it sounded like he did not have a particularly good area code game, but like the third swing he takes in batting practice on Friday, he hits a ball into the pool, right? And so like it's it's this crazy lot collection of tools it, it doesn't sound like it's been as consistent in games and with Gasparino like he's kind of freakish as an athlete right because he can really run too and I know you said he's just kind of like yeah he's okay in center uh, one of the things that I keep having to get over that's a personal bias is that you know again we're talking about how huge these guys are like Bradley Zimmer and Cody Bellinger kind of opened up center field for these guys that are Will Gasparino size I didn't see Bellinger in high school but I would bet you that there's a lot of physical similarity to them in terms of, of you know, like Gasparino might be a little bit thinner because, you know, he's, I mean, again, he's like eating 4,000 calories a day to try and get to 215 by the end of summer, but he's like, it's really long levers and it's just a really good feel to play. He's a guy that, that like, it would not surprise me if he went out next spring and had a monster spring because he's playing at Harvard-Westlake, so he's got you know big competition around him, that all of a sudden we're talking about him as a top 10 pick. That's a guy that has, I, I think, has the chance to really, really burst up the scene. And you know, I was talking to David Ronsley, who you know kind of runs the scouting stuff at, at Perfect Game and had worked you know, in pro ball for a long time. And Rons was saying that that you know a year ago he had had Gasparino at the top of his list, and and that people kind of looked at him a little scant. And he's like, listen, he's just like. I think he called him a colt, but he's basically a puppy. Like he's gonna fill out at some point, and the the tools are pretty loud. And I, and I agree with you. Like he can play. Like it's a really re- he's a really impressive kid, and he's an impressive kid to talk to too. All right, so let's see. Anybody else that I miss here that I've got stuffed really good? Namala, yes. Um, honestly, Namala, from the way his swing looks like and the way it finishes, he kind of he has like a Mookie Betts look just mechanically like what he's doing visually i don't know he, he but. he's i mean he's fascinating like i i just like i love that player so much like i think he is like he would be at the he would be number one on my my high school prep list for next year i would have my head of clark i think um both him and a guy who wasn't at the pg all-american game but was at area codes ashton larson yeah who's committed to LSU, just in terms of like guys who surprised me with how consistent their BP was in terms of like hitting for power in BP, pulling and lifting over and over and over again. Those were the two guys who are not necessarily like the 6'4", like Nolan Stevens. When you watch Mm -hmm. Nolan Stevens from Northern California, left-handed hitting first baseman, get into the box, you know he is about to put balls like halfway up the bleachers at Chase Field. And that's just not true of like Arj Namala. And it's not true of Ashton Larson and some of these other guys. And yet they do it. And it's not like, wow, look at this guy's bat speed. Look at his capacity for movement. It's not like watching Javier Baez swing as hard as he can. It is just consistent and easy and measured and kind of surprising for for both those guys. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right. Let's transition to talking about big league stuff. What was your 
opinion on expanded playoffs at the time it was being proposed and agreed upon. Did you have any thoughts initially about what it would do to the way fan engagement was happening around this time of year as the calendar is about to turn to September? And as you're looking at the standings, how is that sort of bearing out? So I don't know that I necessarily viewed it as impacting fan engagement that much because I don't know how much the added wild card when they went from four to five really engaged, you know, a ton more fans. I mean, you're talking about basically the same number of teams usually that are competing for playoff spots in that. It's just a matter of, you know, there's now one more space, right? Like, so, so if you go from like the difference, I guess, would be you know, like in the National League, you've got the Phillies, what, a game and a half ahead of San Diego, and then, you know, game, uh, they're a game and a half ahead of Milwaukee. And so, like, those three teams would be battling for one spot instead of two. And so maybe there's a little bit less of a sense of urgency with it. So I don't know that I necessarily viewed it, any of it from a fan engagement standpoint, that it was going to change very much. I thought from a fairness standpoint, you know, moving the wild card round to a three-game series was a win. I'm glad that they didn't expand the postseason further to include, you know, seven teams in each league. And I know that day is coming when, you know, they get to 32 teams and you're going to have half of each league that gets in or whatever, whatever baseball's leagues look like at that point that you're going to end up with, you know, 16 playoff teams basically. But, you know, like I, I just... I don't know that I have – I was resigned to the fact that they were going to continue to expand playoffs because that's where the most of the money is in TV. But it doesn't like move the needle for me much, and I don't know that I heard it. It saw anything that was coming down the pike that was going to be like, oh, all of a sudden we're going to get like five more fan bases involved because that really hasn't been the case. I mean, we've got, you know, what, seven teams that are battling for six spots in the National League, and you've got you know, theoretically eight teams that are battling for six spots in the American League, maybe nine if you wanted to include the White Sox still, but it's tough to do that. So I'm not sure that that would have been really all that much different if we had had five playoff spots or six playoff spots in each league. All right, so let's look at the National League here in Arizona. We've got uh, Philly and then Milwaukee coming in this week. I'm going to be at the ballpark a bunch for for both of those, staying indoors while the summer is trying to hold on as tight as it possibly can (laughs) to the Valley here for the next little bit. I don't think I'm going to... Instructs stuff has begun in the West Valley here. We rolled right into the comp from the Complex League playoffs into instructs for a bunch of the West Valley teams. I think some of the East Valley teams, like, you know, the D-backs, Rockies, and Giants at least are doing a little bit of play-in games early in the morning, but it's like 109 here Mm -hmm. for the next little bit. So I'm just going to be going to the air-conditioned chase field. But Philly, Atlanta, San Diego, and Milwaukee are all clustered within – well, actually, it's really mostly Philly, San Diego, and Milwaukee are clustered within like four games of one another with – I guess San Francisco at shouting distance still. How deep is I that? Seven, I think they're eight and a half games, games back now. Of that's San tough. Diego. I think it's they're a game ahead of the Diamondbacks for third place now. So I think that's wow. Uh, it's more like a thanks for coming out at this point with the Giants. So so how do you handicap that group? What do you see as the, the meaningful like variables here as we get down the stretch? San Diego after having such a huge deadline. It feels shaky just because of the Tati suspension and how mightily Hater is struggling. Uh, it's just one of those narrative things that feels sort of ominous. 
Yeah, I think so. I have a little bit different take on it. I mean, I think, you know, I was talking to, I was at the ballpark last night and we're recording this on what Tuesday, right? So, like, I was there talking to a bunch of Phillies people and people who cover the team. And I think the Phillies have kind of gone from, you know, what they were early in the season to being a team that's actually really pretty good. And I think they get overlooked a little bit because they're in a division with two teams that might end up winning 100 games in the Mets and the Braves. And I think those two teams are pretty closely close together. I mean, to me, there's there's five elite teams in baseball right now, right? It's the Dodgers, it's the Mets and the Braves, it's the Yankees and the Astros. And those are the ones that I would set aside. And then everybody else is kind of in that next group. And Philly belongs in that group based on the way they've played and they've improved defensively. Now they've had a little bit of uh, some hiccups injury-wise in the rotation. And I'm curious to see see how that, you know, ends up potentially impacting them. You know, they have improved defensively, but they're not a perfect defensive team. Their bullpen has gotten significantly better, you know, so I think they're one of the favorites. I would I would say that they're in the, they are the best position. I mean, they're in the fifth spot right now, but I think they're best position. And then it's down to two pretty similar teams in San Diego and Milwaukee in that they both have bullpen questions. You know, the Brewers bullpen questions aren't because they traded Hader. They had a miserable July as a group and trading Hader allowed them to bring in you know, three different guys, only two of which are going to contribute since Trevor Rosenthal's out for the year now that they were trying to kind of rebuild that on the fly. But their offense isn't real consistent. They're pretty good against righties. They're terrible against left-handed pitching. The Padres' offense has not been consistent at all this year. Uh, they both play decent enough defense. I think the Padres are a little bit better there. And really, I think the Padres' starting pitching is deeper than Milwaukee's. You know, Milwaukee is based on that kind of three-headed monster of, you know, Burns and and Woodruff and Peralta. And Burns hasn't been quite as dominant as he was last year because, like, no human being possibly could be. And Peralta's just starting to round into shape. And while, while I like, you know, Lauer and Hauser, I don't think that the back of their rotation stacks up quite as well as San Diego's. And San Diego's fascinating to me because, like, if they were to be in a position where, let's say, they end up facing the Cardinals, they're one of the few teams that can negate some of the Cardinals' power. The Cardinals just destroy left-handed pitching. And they could, instead of you know, going and using Snell and or Manaya in a three-game set, they can go Darvish, Musgrove, Clevenger in some order and have three potentially dominant starting pitchers there. So... I kind of like the way it's set up right now. I'm I'm bummed about Milwaukee because that was a team that I really thought was going to take control of the Central Division this year, and they didn't. And so, like, I, I that's a team that I still had. You know, I felt like because of the division they played in, they had a chance to win 100 games this year. They're clearly not going to, but they just have not been able to get on track. Whereas the Padres have been more like seeding a little bit of ground, but are still you know on pace to win 90 something games. And you know, I think they're a very very dangerous playoff team because they're deep and because they do have two stars in the middle of that lineup in Machado and Soto that are capable of hitting the best pitching in the league. Yeah, I I think Milwaukee and Philly, if either gets in, that they're dangerous outs just because of what healthy Philly brings with Wheeler, Nola, mm-hmm. and even Ranger Suarez when things are going well. And the same is obviously true of Milwaukee having Burns and Woodruff and Again, theoretically a healthy and fully operational Freddie Peralta. It is interesting that like Philly's bullpen has been basically been even when Philly was good 15 years ago, the bullpen was consistently an issue. It wasn't like Brad Lidge was everyone was super comfortable with him when he was 
you know, the Phillies close or anything like that. So it's basically been an, uh, an issue since then. And then things did really stabilize this year. And it's a shame that like Sir Anthony Dominguez is hurt again mm-hmm. after things had looked really good there. And at least when I was home and was in there to see them against the Mets, the tone, the tone of the city, you'll be shocked to hear this, Mike, is not one of optimism. Some of it is because the Mets have really had their number all year. And the series that I saw uh, while I was in Philly was particularly exciting just as a neutral observer, but like not fun if you were a, a Phillies fan. And so like they're getting fat against, I think, of their next, of like their 20 games or so after that Mets series, it was like Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, here in Arizona, right. like softer opponents who they could kind of get right against. Uh, now Nick Castellanos is dealing with an injury. But top to bottom, Philly's lineup is so dangerous, you know, that they have a puncher's chance against anyone if it's a slugfest. JT Realmuto has really rounded into form. You, you know, at, at one point this year, he was hitting like 220. And now you look up and he's had a five-war season again. So he's he's still doing his thing. And, and Bohm seems to be back to doing his thing after struggling a little bit last year. But, you know, I think that that group is, I agree with you, like it's really good. All right, how about if you had to, in the NL, is there anyone who you think is a deep run sleeper at the at, at this point, you think it's just San Diego because the rotation is so deep, or do you have any other favorites to come out of the NL that maybe feel against the grain? I mean, does Atlanta feel against the grain at this no. point? I mean, so no. I, don't, I don't know. I mean, like, like I keep doubting the Cardinals, but like all they do is win. I mean, Goldschmidt. Like, if it weren't for Paul Goldschmidt, we would be talking about Nolan Arenado as the leading candidate for MVP in the National League. Oh. They're when you factor in defense, they're having pretty similar seasons because just defensive position. I mean, Goldschmidt's one of the best defenders on the planet at first, too. And, you know, Goldschmidt has a legitimate chance. I think he's, what, three homers behind Schwarber as we're talking for the National League League and, and homers. I mean, it's been 85 years since someone has won the traditional, you know, triple crown. And and I think Jay Jaffe wrote about this this week that it has been, like, 1967 was the last year that somebody won the, the homer RBI batting average triple crown while also the leading the league and on base and slugging percentage and that's what Goldschmidt is doing so like they're really like if you've got left-handed pitching you just like might as well just forfeit that game to the Cardinals and move on to the next one because the, the, <laughs> they're so good against lefties they're a little bit more approachable I think against righties and they have this other like wild card in that Jack Flaherty could be back and if Jack Flaherty is Jack Flaherty like all of a sudden he lines up against the best starters on other teams and that's kind of where I I view the Cardinals as being like they have a solid rotation but they're not necessarily that sexy rotation for a postseason run and so like I think Flaherty becomes pretty important for them and if he's back and he's healthy that changes the equation a little bit and I think makes them a sleeper in that group. They're kind of towards the front of that next group for me, you know, nationally. It's like them and Seattle, I think, are kind of those next two teams of if somebody could jump up and and snipe the the top fives, those would be my best 
best to do it overall, just based on, and, and again, it's if the Cardinals have a healthy Jack Flaherty, I think their chances are much better because it's a deep enough offense, even with some of the struggles, you know, left-handed for Carlson and for Edmund, you know, if Tyler O'Neill continues to finish strong, which you know, he's been playing very well, um, new that bar's been helps out. Yeah, new bar. Well, they have a lot of options. Brendan Donovan just gets on base, right? Like, so he's going to create yeah. scoring opportunities. So there are a lot of things to like, I think, with the Cardinals and they have, you know, legit bullpen weapons too. So that that would be my, I guess, National League sleeper. It's weird to say a team that's going to win the division is going to do that, but they haven't received the attention that that certainly the Mets and the Dodgers and Atlanta have this year. And some of it is just Cardinal fatigue, right? Like the Cardinals being competitive is old hat for every <laughs> living American. Right. But you, know, you got to give them credit for their, I mean, they're consistently in the playoffs and they always have been for, you know, ever since the playoffs expanded, I would assume that only the Yankees maybe have more postseason appearances since we went to a wild card round than the Cardinals do. I mean, they're, they're there every year for a reason. It's because they're really good. I think that they're, the thing that makes them very dangerous is their ability to shorten a game mm-hmm. that I think that probably from a performance standpoint, their bullpen has been closer to average during the course of the year. But if I'm just looking at stuff in the playoffs, having Helsley and Gallegos and like Jordan Hicks with adrenaline going in the playoffs, like what is that really going to be like? And then Andre Pallante gets to be your multi-inning mm. weapon. Like they just, the way things, Jojo Romero, I think is also great for I agree. a role like that. So you can bring in, you know, left, right. You can turn a lineup around if, you know, Dakota Hudson and Jojo Romero, like are in essence piggybacking in a, in a playoff scenario. Like I think that there are all sorts of cool things that the, the Cardinals playoff pitching staff is going to be able to do. Chris Stratton's another one who they got in, in, yeah. in the, the Quintana deal from Pittsburgh, who's kind of gotten overlooked. I mean, Stratton, you know, like was a first round draft pick a a bazillion years ago, and it's taken him a long time to get it figured out. But I think, you know, he has certainly thrown the ball better than, than really, maybe with the exception of last year, any point in his career. And, you know, that's a guy that has, like, if you have trouble with spin, Chris Stratton can spin you, you know? So like that's a, I think that you're right. They have a lot of different options that they can go with. Yeah. When you get into playoff mode, the way pitching deployment happens is just different. And yeah, just kind of looking at the Cardinals like on roster resource eyeballing it. This is the group that I think has big time roundup in terms of who can like look like an impact arm when it's playoff time. Mm-hmm. All right. So then the AL, the Central is still up in the air. You know, as bad as things look for the White Sox, they are only five behind Cleveland. Swept being swept by Arizona was not a great feeling for them, I assume. Um, what sort of happened here and what is the scenario in which the White Sox come from behind here late and and take the AL Central? I think it's going to be tough for them to do without Tim Anderson. I think the biggest thing with the White Sox is like, what happened to the power in that lineup? You know, Albert Pujols has 15 home runs this year as a part-time player in St. Louis. He would lead the White Sox in home runs. And listen, like Jose Abreu is having a really good year and Luis Robert has had a solid season and Aloy Jimenez since coming back is swung the bat okay, but there's not a ton of pop. And in fact, their isolated power as a group is down towards the bottom of the league. I mean, this was supposed to be a lineup that bludgeoned you and because they don't walk, that impacts them. They don't really strike out much. 
But no team in baseball has more singles than them. And it's really difficult to try and string together singles and put up multi-run innings. If you get three singles in a row, you still would like to have somebody that can hit a three-run homer, and they haven't done it. The rotation, you know, with Kopech out, gets a little bit thinner. The bullpen, I think losing Crochet hurt them, but Graveman hasn't been as good as he was last year. Joe Kelly took a long time for him to get on track. I just don't think that... I'm just not sure that it's in them, let's say, to make a run over the last 35 games because there's just nothing that they've done to prove that they can. And they're not a good defensive team, and they haven't really done anything to address that. And it's one thing if you're like the Phillies and not a great defensive team, but you're going to crush opposing pitchers, especially guys towards the back end of a rotation. But the White Sox haven't done that, and that's why I think they're mired in the middle. Could the offense turn in the last quarter of the season? I suppose that's possible, but there hasn't been anything that's really led us to believe that. And Cleveland's pitching is pretty strong. And I think the Twins are probably a little bit more balanced team. And and with the additions of Lopez and Fulmer to Duran and the bullpen, like they have a legit end-of-game plan that they can run out. So... I don't know that the White Sox, they're nominally in the race and that they're five games back, but they're also two games under 500, and we're running out of days on the calendar with, what, 30-some-odd games to go. So I just don't, uh, unless they're going to pull off this, you know, Cinderella September or go on a run like the Cardinals did last year where they won, well, like 17 in a row, I'm just not sure that that this is going to be the year for the White Sox, which is going to be extreme. I mean, it's been an extremely frustrating frustrating year for White Sox fans. Incredibly, they have nine games left against Minnesota, and I think only three or four against Cleveland. So Cleveland, they just need Cleveland to lose, and then they have to handle their business against the Twins in a big way. I think San Diego is also on the schedule for the White Sox. Yeah. So their run, the, the last little bit here is, it's not a cakewalk. I think they've got, yeah, here they have San Diego, Seattle, nine against the Twins, four against Cleveland, the rest of the way. So who do you like to come out of the Central then with Cleveland and Minnesota clustered more tightly together? Yeah, I think I like Cleveland. I mean, I like their starting pitching. I like what they have at the end of games. I mean, obviously, Class A is yeah. terrific. But the rest of that bullpen is pretty good. I, Nick Sandlin is nasty. Like, that guy's really good. You know, Karen Check seems to have gotten figured out, you know, after it, it looked like the post-Spider-Tack era had a little bit of an impact on him. And I don't know if that was the reason why or if it was just inconvenient timing. But for, for Karen Check, like, he has really helped you know, stabilize that pen. And I think they have a lot of options of the rotation plus they have two guys that I th- I feel really good about running out in one and two slots you know in a postseason series the in Bieber and Tristan McKenzie that you know are are really good Cal Quantrill's done a nice job for them in the rotation overall too so I think it's Cleveland their lack of power concerns me you know I think their series against Seattle was a pretty good indication of where they might run into problems like you can hold down a good offense but there's just not a lot of pop there that said, I'm not sure that I would trade their infield as a group for a whole lot of other infields in the game because the Ramirez, Rosario, Jimenez, Naylor quartet has been really, yeah. really good this year. Andres Jimenez is quietly having a top five MVP season and nobody seems to have noticed yet. Like that guy's putting together a hell of a year. So 
there's some offensive concerns I still have there with them, but I think their pitching is in a little bit better shape. The bullpen, even with some of those changes, feels a little bit more shaky. The starting pitching feels a little more shaky for Minnesota. And while they have a number of guys coming back, you know, guys who have been out with injury sometimes take a couple of outings and or a couple of games or a week's worth of games to get back into the swing of things. And they just don't have that much time because they're chasing. So I think I like Cleveland still with Minnesota just on the outside looking in, but I, you know, and then, you know, whoever finishes second, I think is going to be, you know, is going to be out of the wild card picture too. And then looking at the wild card, Tampa Bay, 70 and 57, Toronto, 69, 58, Baltimore, 67 and 60 twins are in that mix as well. They're at 66 and 61, obviously whoever, you know, doesn't win the central, at least whoever is in second is, is in the mix. And then Seattle at 70 and 58, that is the way things are clustered. Tampa seems like they're starting to get healthy after they, it seems like every year Tampa has a lot of guys who are severely injured. And mm-hmm. this was another campaign. Shane Boz is throwing again. We'll just sort of see how he looks as he comes back. But Pete Fairbanks looks very good coming off of injury. Uh, Luis Patino is back and it was rocky initially and then was better his last time out. So, you know, how do you sort of handicap the AL wildcard picture at this stage? Yeah, it's. I think it's tough to go against Tampa. I mean, like the fly in the ointment is Baltimore, right? Like they're the team that isn't supposed to be there. They're a year ahead of schedule at least, but they have already one of the best players in the game in Adley Rushman. And I'm really curious to see how they handle September with call-ups with prospects that could be ready because while I'm sure that there is part of them that would like to keep the roster spot open in the winter. Like you can't really tell me that Gunnar Henderson is going to provide a lot, much less offensively than what they're getting at third and second right now. And, you know, he would be able to be somebody that I think could help them, but we'll see whether or not they, they decide to do that or if they kind of stick to their right. long-term, their long-term plans. I think John Mioli's done a really good job of writing about that in his sub stack and just kind of like, Hey, this is kind of a crossroads for them. And they don't have the Grayson too, starting right? pitchers. Yeah. Great. I mean, Grayson's back and throwing, right? So like he's, he's throwing in, in Aberdeen this week and on a rehab assignment. And so, you know, Grayson Rodriguez could get some outings there, but, but he's probably not going to be able to be stretched out as a starter. And they have less of a, I mean, that you can use all the good arms you can get in September, right? But they probably have a little bit more of a need in the rotation, at least with names that aren't, you know, it reminds me a little of the 2012 Orioles, which really didn't have a rotation and Buck just kind of decided the day of who was pitching first and that team made the playoffs. So, so like, I, I think they're, they're an interesting team and they have played really well against Tampa Bay and Toronto, which were the two teams that two teams that just absolutely crushed them a year ago. So I like Tampa Bay, I think, because I think they're most balanced. I think with McClanahan and Rasmussen, they have two really quality starters to kind of anchor that rotation, which is going to be helpful down the stretch. And I do think that, you know, even if he's going to be slowed a little bit when he first comes back with timing issues, I think Wander Franco is going to be extremely helpful to be able to get that bat back in the lineup. So I think I like Tampa in that. I think Toronto, Toronto, you know, as much as there is consternation about the Jays, I think they're pretty well positioned. It would be really nice if they could get Jose Barrios to pitch well for the month of September. It would probably make them feel better. But I think they're they're also the two guys that 
are the most vulnerable in that race. Whereas I think Seattle is like, I'll be surprised if Seattle isn't the top wildcard team at the end of the day. And it doesn't have as much to do with the schedule as it just does. I think their rotation is in really good shape. I like the mix and match bullpen that they have. I think they have enough offense overall that they can be a dangerous team. You know, they obviously they have Julio Rodriguez, who's transcendent. So like, there's a lot of stuff to really like with Seattle right now. And I think they kind of fit in that the top of that next group. But I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot of movement here. I guess I kind of went chalk today, right? Like the teams that are in playoff positions, I expect to be in playoff positions when the postseason starts. And I'm kind of bummed about that because who doesn't like <laughs> the thought of a team in September like racing to the front of the pack and winning, winning, you know, a division or winning, winning a wild card. Hell, I mean, like the we're not that far away from the American League East being back in play, right? Like the Yankees lead is down to seven and all of a sudden maybe we need to start talking about them in that mix. You know, I'm, I'm still pretty bullish on the Yankees overall, but it certainly has made things more interesting there. So it's, I hate to be boring, but I guess I'm boring. You were chalked from top to bottom, basically. Uh, in terms of playoff odds, well, we have Cleveland winning the division at 58% and the Twins at 33.5% with the White Sox at about 8%. As far as wild card guys go, just for playoff odds, yes, the Mariners are number one among the non-division leaders in the American League at 94%. Then Toronto at 92.5%, Tampa Bay at 85 and then Baltimore at the least among them at 8%, even lower than the White Sox, actually, who we have as a 12.5% shot to make the playoffs. I do think that I certainly am like rooting for Baltimore as much as like I root for anyone, not just because of Rushman and Cedric Mullins, who I also really, really love, like of guys who play baseball who I think are most fun to watch. Like Cedric Mullins mm -hmm. is definitely on my all aesthetic baseball team. And you're right, like Ramon Urias who it's great for a guy to like come into regular big league playing time in his mid twenties after, you know, signing out of the Mexican league the way he did. It's, it's a cool story. And like, I'm happy to have written about him as a pro as an interesting prospect, even though he was like a no name, you know, guy in his mid twenties, but he's basically been worth one marginal win. Right. And yeah, I think Gunner could come up and, and especially when, you know, quote unquote leverage index is high, just game to game, because you're fighting for a playoff spot. Like, yeah, I'd probably rather have him. As far as how Grayson looks, I was at a game with an Oriole scout earlier. I, I don't even know what day it is. Last week, I guess it was towards the end of the complex season. And I was like, hey, how did that, how did that go? How did his live BP go? He was just like, it went well, you know, like wry smile. I'm not getting a whole lot of details from someone who, you know, works for a team that is now worried about advanced being like their team being advanced right. for the first time in <laughs> quite a while. So. But yeah, the Orioles have that vibe where they're playing with house money, man, and it's just fun to watch them and they keep winning. And so I do think that if there's a team where, you know, I'm going to throw a dart and say this, even though we have them as like 8% playoff odds, I kind of think that, that it's Baltimore. But that is because Tampa has been so injured. And as right. I said, like that's coming around where Margot is back and looks great. 
you know, it's not just this and that. Fairbanks looks nails and, you know, everyone who's getting healthy in Tampa Bay looks good coming back from like having been hurt, which isn't always the case. All right. Well, you and I have done almost an hour, which is like twice as long as we were supposed to go. And that's... (laughs) I didn't even realize that. Yeah. Having almost no interpersonal conversation uh, and only talking baseball, which... We can save that for you and Erica to come hang out again at the house and we'll, yes. and we'll watch some football or something. But we'll bring you guys over and hang out with the dogs. Well, thanks for having me. It was fun, man. I, I've really enjoyed, you know, I've added a bunch of amateur duties back in covering college for ESPNU radio and, and you know, now getting back into the draft cycle with the perfect game stuff. And I'm going to do the um, the future series game that's coming up at Fenway next month, too, to get a little look at some of these high school guys. And so I'm, I'm you know, I'm super excited about the draft and I, I love talking about the draft because I'm a dork and I just like nerd out about the geekiest baseball stuff and the draft is it, it definitely like makes me this kind of like niche moron and so I appreciate <laughs> being a moron in a niche as opposed to being a general moron me too that's why I ha- have you know purged myself of ambition <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yes didn't we lose him in the ambition purge yes well for Mike Farron and for Dylan Higgins, our producer, I've been Eric Long and Hagen. Talk to you again soon, listeners, on Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Mike Farron for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. After you have moseyed on over to the Fangraphs shop to check out our merch and perhaps a membership, don't forget to sign up for that Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on all the things we have going on free to your inbox. And like we discussed with Sean Dolinar last week, go check out the Fangraphs app. It's free in your Apple or Google store and is a tailored experience for using Fangraphs on your phone while you're at the ball game or out and about or whatever. We think you'll enjoy it. That does it for us this week. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next time.